There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with, I don't know, Greg and Colin again. Again. Yes. Here we are, episode 92 of our podcast. Can't believe that, actually, Greg. It's adding up quickly. Closing in on 100. We started down this path a few episodes ago when we started looking at probabilities and volatility. We had a discussion on standard deviation. We talked a little bit about beta. So today we're going to continue through the basics of finance and investing principles by talking about two things, expected return and the capital asset pricing model. And those are very common things in our world, Greg. True enough. True enough. I think next week we'll probably wrap up this little mini series when we get into factors of return and specifically focusing on the FAMA French factor model as an example of a factor portfolio model. Right, right on. Yep. So we've been talking about this subject, purposely building off of previous principles on each episode, because this is not the easiest stuff to understand, Greg. No, and it's the kind of thing that it's easy to overlook. And, and for many investment professionals, as well as investors themselves, they don't really dig down into the sort of like the weeds with regards to things like capital asset pricing model or models of trying to predict expected return. But they do factor quite seriously into, you know, if you're investing in mutual funds, the kind of analyses that the fund managers might might use in their stock selections. Yeah, well, I think that's the point. We're going through things that are being worked on from the ground level. That's right. right? So these people behind the scenes, when they're putting together these portfolios, be it exchange-traded funds, mutual funds, or stock and bond portfolios, you would expect that this type of work is what they'd be working on. Right. Yep. Exactly. So this is not the the ex- expectation is that like our friends and parents and relatives who have investments with us actually go through the capital asset pricing model. No. Right. No, they don't. But I think it's good to know that what it is. Exactly. So why don't we dive in and let's start by talking about what is expected return. So you know, expected return basically is the profit or loss that an investor would anticipate on an investment that has some sort of known historical rates of return. And it's calculated by multiplying potential outcomes by the chances of them occurring and then totaling these results. And so when you think about it, so we've talked a lot about, as you say, we've talked in the past about probability. Mm -hmm. Potential outcomes are, are basically just assigning probabilities to those outcomes. And, and so this really builds towards what we're talking about today. So, Expected return calculations are kind of a key piece of both business operations and financial theory, including well-known models of the modern portfolio theory, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So for example, let's say an investment has a 50% chance of gaining 20% and a 50% chance of losing 10%, the expected return would be 5%, which is 50% of 20% and 50% of minus 10%. Yeah, add, add it together. Add those together and you get 5%. Yeah. So the expected return basically is a tool 
used to determine whether or not an investment has a positive or negative average net outcome. And the sum is calculated as the expected value of an investment given the potential returns in different scenarios. But it's expected, it's not given. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and primarily because the expected return is usually based on historical data and therefore not guaranteed into the future. And so, you know, if you look at, well, gee, how has a stock or a market performed over the last 5, 10, 15 years, you can sort of try to use those historical returns as a basis for trying to make predictions about future returns. But of course, as we know, they absolutely would not be guaranteed. Well, because it's kind of like using yesterday's weather to predict today's weather. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. So so the historical data doesn't, you know, give us any guarantee of the future, but it does set some reasonable expectations. So the expected return figure can be thought of as a long-term weighted average of historical returns. And the expected return and standard deviation, which we talked about last time, I believe, are two statistical measures that can be used to analyze the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So the expected return of the portfolio as a whole is the anticipated amount of returns that a portfolio may generate, making it the mean or average of the portfolio's possible return distribution. Wait, wait, let us back that up a little bit. Right. Let, let's decipher that for our listeners. Right. So we talked about that a little bit last time. And so when we look at standard deviation of a portfolio, what did we talk about? We talked about that's the amount by which a return would typically deviate from a, an average, let's say. Yeah. Right? So an example is the S&P 500. The average return over the last 80 years is like 8% a year. Right. Right? The standard deviation on the S&P 500 is 15. Correct. So within one standard deviation to the right, it could go from anywhere from 8% to 23% rate of return. Yep. Mm-hmm. One standard deviation to the left would go from... to minus 7%. Right on. Right? Yep. Okay. So the standard deviation basically really makes it it a proxy for the portfolio's risk, right? So how much Mm -hmm. will the actual returns vary from the expected return? Or the the expected being the mean. That's right. Exactly. Okay. I think we did a good job explaining that. All right. So- I mean, good enough. Good enough. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, obviously there's limitations to that expected return. You can't make investment decisions solely on expected return calculations because that could be, in some cases, naive and dangerous, strictly using historical returns and standard deviations to make those decisions. So before making any investment decisions, you have to always review the risk characteristics of an investment opportunity to determine if the investments align with with goals, mm-hmm. right? So for example, let's look at two hypothetical investments. And here's the past five-year results from those two investments. So investment A, let's say, had the following returns over five years, 12%, 2%, 25%, minus 9%, and 10%. That's pretty widely spread. That's right. So you've got a high of 25% in one year and a low of minus 9%. So there's a 34% spread. Investment B has the following returns, 7%, 6%, 9%, 12%, and 6%. Those are tighter distributions. Much tighter. The lowest yep. was 6 and the highest is 12 So both of those investments have exactly the same historical and possibly expected returns of exactly 8%. Hmm. Right? So if you just average the five years of returns for each investment, they both come out to exactly 8%. Mm-hmm. 
But when you analyze the risk of each one, which and using standard deviation for that, investment A is probably five times riskier than investment B. Mm-hmm. Because the standard deviation of that first investment that I mentioned has a standard deviation of about 11.26%. And the standard deviation of investment B is 2.28%. Well, we just talked about that. So A had a wider dispersion of results and B had a much tighter dispersion of results. That's right. Yeah. So we have to use standard deviation or it is commonly used to measure an investment's historical volatility. In investment terms, we often talk about that as risk. Okay. And then when you talk about expected returns, you should also consider the likelihood of a return. So for example, you can find instances where like certain lotteries will offer a positive expected return, despite having incredibly low chances of actually realizing that. So if you have a 0.001% chance of getting a million percent return on your $1 investment, that's still a positive expected return. But the likelihood of actually achieving that return is so infinitesimally small that it may or may not be worthwhile. Yeah, no, insurance is also a form of lottery, right? That's right. So if you have home insurance, you're... I guess you're buying a ticket, a lottery ticket that your house is going to burn down. Well, that's right. right. And it's really the actuaries and the underwriters of the insurance companies that look at the probability distribution of your house burning down. And that's how they set premiums. Yeah. Because there's an expectation there will be a certain number of house fires and they spread that risk over the entire group of insureds. And then 100% of the time, they just raise your premiums. Exactly. (laughs) I wish I was joking. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about expected return. So expected return doesn't just apply to necessarily a single security or asset. It can also be used to analyze a portfolio that contains many investments. So if you know the expected return for each investment, then the portfolio's overall expected return is just going to be the weighted average of those expected returns of each of their components. Right, because they're moving together. That's right. Or they're contributing to the same They're each contributing, that's right. So we can look at, so let's look at an investor who's interested in the tech sector. Now, Greg, I know you're going to mention three stock names. I am. We have to do this, the normal disclaimer. Are we recommending these three names? No, we're not. We're merely using them as an example. Yeah, illustrative purposes only. Exactly. So let's say there's a portfolio of three stocks, Alphabet, which most people know as Google, Apple, and Amazon. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's look at each three of those. So Alphabet or Google, let's say you've got $500,000 invested with an expected return of 15%. Apple, you've got 200000 invested with an expected return of 6%. And Amazon, 300000 invested with an expected return of 9%. So a million-dollar portfolio. million-dollar portfolio. And Google is 50%, Apple's 20%, and Amazon is 30%. Wait, Greg, before we go on. Would we ever recommend that somebody invest a million dollars in three stocks? No, we wouldn't. No, that's just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But this is just for illustrative purposes. Don't hold back. I mean, uh, you know, tell me how you really feel. (laughs) You know, but uh, for illustrative purposes, exactly. And so, so you can calculate the expected return of the portfolio by just multiplying the weight of the stock in the portfolio by its expected return. And so with the numbers I gave you, you've got 50% Google with an expected return of 15%, 20% of Apple with a 6% Expected return, 30% of Amazon with a 9% expected return, gives you an 11.4% expected rate of return for the portfolio. So you're just, you're just weighting each, right? So Absolutely. The weight of Apple was 50% and you're multiplying it by its expected return of 15%. Exactly. And doing the same for the other two securities. 
that's, that's where right. you're getting the 11.4%. That's right. So, so you know, why are we even talking about expected return, how it's used in finance? Well, expected return calculations are, are a kind of a key piece of both business operations and financial theory, including the sort of the well-known models of modern portfolio theory, which we have talked about in the past, the Black-Scholes options pricing model, which is more complex and not really relevant for our discussions here. But it's a tool to use to determine whether an investment has a positive or negative average net outcome. And again, as mentioned, the calculation is usually based on some historical data and can't be guaranteed for future results, but it can actually set some reasonable expectations. And I said data. Now, do we say data or data? Depends if you're talking about my cell phone plan or you're talking about things that go into a financial plan. Gotcha. I don't okay. know. I think I say data. I say both, and I don't know yeah. why I deviate from one to the other, but I guess I do. Anyway, so again, the key things, the key takeaway from this conversation, expected return is something that's largely based on, or can be based on historical observations. And a standard deviation is a statistical measure that looks at the variation of actual returns from the mean or from an expected return. Yeah, so the standard deviation would just be plotting what actually occurred. That's right. Right, so it's looking back. So, well, let's talk about the capital asset pricing model, or otherwise known as the CAPM. You've obviously heard of this. I, know I have. We've both studied it many times over the years. The CAPM was introduced by Jack Trainer, William Sharp, and a few others, and it was building on the earlier work of Harry Markowitz, which was work on diversification and modern portfolio theory that you mentioned. Right on. Now, interestingly enough, you know, we're talking about the capital asset pricing model, but there's a couple of key statistical ratios that have come out of the people that worked on this. Like there's, I mentioned Jack Trainer. Well, there's actually a trainer ratio, yep. right? And William Sharp, well, there's a sharp ratio, right? right? And I won't get into the boring part of that, but it's interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Anyways, Sharp, Markwitz, and another guy named Merton Miller jointly received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1990 for their contribution to the field of financial economics. And Fisher Black developed another version of the capital asset pricing model called the Black CAPM or Zero Beta CAPM. Now, this doesn't assume the existence of a riskless asset. I'll dig into that a bit more in a, in a second. This version was more was thought to be more robust against empirical testing and was influential in the widespread adoption of the CAPM. So what is the CAPM exactly? I've just described who developed it, but we actually haven't talked about it. Right. The capital asset pricing model describes the relationship between systematic risk and expected return for assets, particularly stocks. So you just went through expected returns. Yep. Now we're talking about how it comes into sort of calculating that relationship between risk and return. Is it worth just reminding people the difference between systematic risk and unsystematic risk? Because CAPM yes. deals with systematic risk, and the systematic risk is just the risk of being invested in the market. Yeah. Right? So, so give uh, us an example. So, well, let's say you just invest in one company. Yeah. Well, that has a lot of risk because the company may experience hard times. It might be a let's say a company in the energy industry and oil drops down to $20 from $100 a barrel. So there can be a lot of factors that affect the performance or the, you know, the stock market performance of that particular company that don't affect the rest of the stock market. So 
unsystematic risk is risk that can be diversified away by having a large enough portfolio. So uh, unsystematic is, is also called idiosyncratic. It's called idiosyncratic. It's called specific risk or company risk. And it really just relates to the risk that can be diversified away. So if yeah. you have only one stock, you've got a lot of unsystematic risk. Yeah. If you have a thousand stocks, you have virtually no unsystematic risk. And so you're left with only systematic risk, which is the risk of being in the market. Very good. Okay. Mind if I carry on with the Please do. capital asset pricing model now? Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> She's okay. chomping at the bit there, are you? <laughs> okay. CAPM is widely used throughout finance for pricing risky securities and generating expected returns for assets given the risk of those assets and the cost of capital. So how we understand the capital asset pricing model is it's a formula like everything in finance, right? Right. The formula is this. Now, it's easier to to show somebody by drawing, but we'll do our best to describe it, okay? Yep. So the formula is this. The expected return of a portfolio or a stock or whatever equals the risk-free rate plus the beta of that particular stock or market times the expected return of the market minus the risk-free rate. Well, that's a that's a handful. It is. So all it means is this. When I say risk-free rate, we're talking about the U.S. Treasury bill rate, okay. right? So like there's no risk to that. That's right. Something that you can invest in that you have a guaranteed return without taking any risk. Yeah. And therefore, the return is very low because there's no risk associated with it, right? right? And so again, risk-free plus the beta. Well, beta, as we've talked about in this episode and past, is just the sensitivity of that stock or portfolio to the market, right? Yes. So the market has a beta of one. Yeah. A price sensitivity of something that's more volatile will have a beta higher than one and less volatile will be less than one. Yeah. Right? So that is multiplied by the expected return of the market, which you mentioned was probably around 8% for the S&P 500 over the last 80 years. Sure. Right? Yep. Minus that risk-free rate again. So that is the capital asset pricing model calculation. And again, for anybody who, if they were looking at this calculation, you could tell that when you plug in, as you mentioned, the beta of the market is deemed to be one. And so when you plug the beta of one into that formula, you get the risk-free, the expected return is the risk-free rate plus the return expected return of the market minus the risk-free rate. So... It's just the expected return is just the return of the market. Yeah, so let's do it in real numbers. So if the expected return of the S&P 500 is 8% yep. historically, and the current risk-free rate is, I don't know, one- Call one, it 1%. 1%. Yeah. Well, then the capital asset pricing model would say it's, well, what is it? It'd be like one plus- Eight. Eight minus one. Right. Right? So one plus seven- Is eight. Equals Eight. Exactly. And so when you're looking at the return of the market or the expected return of the market, obviously it's just the return of the market. Yeah. When you're adding securities that have a beta greater than one, greater than the market, then obviously the expected return will be higher. Yeah. And if you have a beta, as we've talked about, where the volatility or beta relative to the market is below one, then you will have an expected return lower than the market. This is getting technical. There you go. <laughs> I feel like it was a Bueller moment there. Yeah? No? Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Well, and again, I think the key thing is that you, what we're talking about is is the factor 
that is affecting the expected return is beta. Yeah. It's the critical factor in the capital asset pricing model. Good point, because that's exactly what the capital asset pricing model cares about, right? So investors expect to be compensated for risk and the time value of money. And that risk-free rate I mentioned in the capital asset pricing model formula, I'm just going to say CAPM from now on. Yep. It accounts for the time value of money. So the other components of the CAPM formula account for the investor taking on additional risk. Yep. The beta, as you mentioned, of a potential investment is just that, a measure of how much risk the investment will add to a portfolio that looks like the market. Yep. So I won't spend any more time on that because we've just gone through that in pretty good detail. But a stock's beta is then multiplied by what's called the market risk premium. Now, the market risk premium is just the expected return of the market less the risk-free rate. Yep. That's called the market risk premium. So That's as we right. mentioned, in real terms, currently, that is 8% minus 1%. Equals seven percent. Right. So that's the market risk premium. Exactly. So this is the return expected from the market above the risk-free rate. Yeah, and and put another way, if an investor buys a treasury bill, they have no risk, presumably, and they expect a one percent rate of return. Yeah. By taking on the risk of the market, they have a higher expected return. Because yes. if they didn't, then why would they do it? And so that market risk premium, that's the premium that an investor expects to earn by taking on the risk of being invested in the market as opposed to just a treasury bill. Yep, exactly. So the goal of the CAPM formula is to evaluate whether a stock is fairly valued when it's, I don't know, risk and the time value of money are compared to its expected return. That's yep. that's why this formula exists. Exactly. Right? So let's give an example. Imagine you've got an investor who's looking at a, a stock that's priced at $100 per share and it pays a 3% dividend. Pretty easy to follow, right? Yep, right on. This stock has a beta of 1.3. Now, we mentioned the market has a beta of 1. So, in other words, it means it's riskier than the market, which makes sense, you know? You're buying an individual stock, you would expect it maybe to have more risk than just being invested in the market, going back to what you said about systematic versus unsystematic risk, right? Yep. Let's assume that the risk-free rate is 3%. Now we're assuming that it's 3% because that's more of a historical number. That's right. right? Not a current number. Yep. And let's expect that the market is going to rise by 8% per year. Right. Which we talked about is pretty pretty normal, right? Yep. So if we plug in the numbers, remember the expected return of the portfolio or stock equals the risk-free plus the beta times the market risk premium. If we just plug in those numbers... Using that data, we would expect the return of this stock based on the CAPM formula to be 9.5%. Right on. Right? Yep. So 9.5% when the market is averaging 8% rate of return. So this stock would be riskier than the market. Yep. Right? So there's a lot of value in doing those analyses, whether it's in a portfolio situation or just in an individual stock position right? There's a lot of value in, yes. in understanding how much risk are you actually taking on? That's right. You know, and I think that's the punchline of the CAPM, right? That's right. Yeah. And analysts use this to, you know, they'll use that number, the expected return, for example, that you just calculated. They'll use that to look at, you know, of course, what what's the present value of a, of a stock, you know, and well, the present value of a stock is based on what the future expected dividends are. Are and, and future cash flows, right? And so by 
calculating, and we're not going to go through that calculation today. No. But by calculating those future dividends and, and cash flows, you can then determine whether or not the present value of that stock is correct if it's fairly valued. And I think we will go through that in a future episode. Sure. I think this one's been technical enough yep. already. But as I said at the beginning, this stuff isn't easy, right? Like there's a reason why people with PhDs work on this stuff, you know? And listen, since the capital asset pricing model came out in, I think, 1962 or 63, somewhere around there, there's been a lot of testing of the theory or of the model. Yeah. And there's some problems that have come up with the CAPM. Tell us, tell us about these problems, Greg. Well, I think part of it is it comes down to the assumptions. And so for the CAPM to work, you know, there's two assumptions that have to be true. One is that securities markets are very competitive and efficient meaning that the relevant information about the companies is quickly and universally distributed and absorbed. So basically things are priced based on all available information in the market today. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And secondly, that markets are dominated by rational risk-averse investors who seek to maximize satisfaction from returns on their investments, meaning that they're always making totally rational decisions based on probabilistic outcomes. This just can't be true. And it likely isn't true. And certainly all of the proponents of behavioral finance would argue that investors are not rational and don't make rational decisions all the time. You know, another disadvantage of the CAPM model that's come up is that within the model itself, it doesn't account for any transaction costs right, or any taxes associated with any trading. Yep. So when you factor all those things together, like you mentioned that markets are efficient, which you could argue they are or they aren't, right? Yep that people always act in a rational, risk-averse behavior, maximizing their utility. I would argue that that's just not true. Yep. And that there are no transaction costs or borrowing costs or taxes. Mm -hmm. These are definitely issues within the CAPM formula. Yeah, and there's one other one too, is when you look at at the formula and you described how the risk-free rate you know, is part of the calculation of expected return. Yeah. It assumes that the risk-free rate is constant over the, what I'll call the discounting period. It was when you look at, okay, well, over the next 10 to 20 years, what are our expected future cash flows from a particular investment? And you discount them back to the previous price. Well, you know, if you look at the rate on the U.S. Treasury bond, I mean, over time, it's deviated wildly. Yeah. You know, back in the 80s, it was you know, in the eight, nine, 10% range, you know, today it's maybe it's 1% now, but in the last year, it's been as low as 0.1%. Yeah. And so that is not a constant. And therefore the calculation then doesn't take that into account. Exactly. You know what, maybe we should wrap this up and just get to the punchline here for the bottom line of what CAPM is just because we're going to run out of time. Sure. So CAPM uses the principles of modern portfolio theory that you described. You know, and it's it's used to determine basically if a security, that being a stock in most cases, it could be a fund or a portfolio, right, are fairly valued. And it relies on assumptions about those investor behaviors that you mentioned, that we're all rational and make rational decisions and yep. all that good stuff. It relies on assumptions about risk and return, which you just mentioned, that yep. these are just assumptions. It's like forecasting yesterday's weather, right? Yep. And market fundamentals don't always match up to reality, right? That's right. Anything else you want to Well, just, you know, just the the thing that the CAPM does, 
as do other models that we'll be talking about next week, like the three-factor model and, and possibly the five-factor model, is that they help investors understand the relationship between risk and expected return. You know, and, that, and that's the key thing, is when investors make investment decisions on a rational basis, if they're investing in a riskier stock or a riskier portfolio, they have an expectation of a higher return. And they don't get it, necessarily, but who would make that decision if there was no expectation of a higher return? And mm-hmm. I think on that basis, we can assume that, that investors are, for the most part, rational. Yeah, I think as a whole, as yes. a whole, but individually, I know I don't yeah. always make the most rational decisions. No. And again, I think it's important for people to realize that the relationship is between risk and expected return and not risk and, and actual observed return, because that can only be observed in, in hindsight. That's right. Greg, so we started down this path, this technical path that we've been on for a few weeks now, because we had a listener that asked us to do that, right? So I would ask anybody else out there that's listening to this, if there's anything that you want us to address, either in a technical fashion or not, let us know, right? Drop us a line. Let us know what you want us to to talk about, because, hey, we're going to be here for many weeks to come. That's right. And I do want to actually give a shout out to Investopedia because Investopedia in many cases does help summarize some of these concepts in a, in a more understandable way. And so we do look to Investopedia from, you know, from time to time to help out with that. Exactly. All right. That's it. More next time. Yes. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.